Our speaker today is Dr. Wesley Hill, and Wesley comes from, uh, to us. He's the Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. He's the author of a number of books. Uh, one of my personal favorites is uh, Washed and Waiting, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality. He uh, writes regularly for Christianity Today, as well as many other publications, and in 2014, uh, Christianity Today included him in a list of 33 under 33 Christian leaders shaping the next generation of ministry. Uh, he speaks abroad at conferences and other types of ministries. He is here uh, as our guest today, but will be at Providence tomorrow doing an uh, open seminar. To, it's a free seminar all day at, at Prov Theological Seminary on uh, community friendship and sexuality. sexuality. Uh, but you're also teaching a full course the entire week, and uh, he is available to uh, be at your whim for questions after the gathering today uh, for a period of time until I usher him out of here for his own safety. <laughs> uh, it's, it's an honor to have somebody of this caliber here uh, to speak to us, uh, and Dr. Wesley, please come on forward, and welcome to Soul Sanctuary. Thank you. Thank you. It's Very a pleasure to have you here. Great to be here. Well, thank you, uh, Pastor Jerry. Thanks to all of you. I, I've met uh, several of you this morning, and I'm just delighted to be in such a friendly, welcoming, hospitable community. So I hope to chat with more of you after the service today. And thanks to Steve and Lisa for uh, collecting me from the airport last night. It was a bit of an adventure getting here, but I finally made it. Um, so we'll pray that the snow holds off so that I can make it out again at the end of the week. But um, it's, it's wonderful to be with you. Um, I wonder if you would just pray with me one more time before we, we look into God's word together. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the words that we were singing earlier, that you love us. You love us, you love us, you love us in Christ. And I pray that everyone here this morning would leave uh, in a few minutes out these doors knowing that in the, in the core of their being, that they are loved and cherished and saved and forgiven and, and made your children. I pray that no one would leave here not knowing your vast, deep, profound love in Jesus Christ uh, this morning. So we pray in his name. Amen. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a teacher, as Jerry said, and, and one of the lucky things about my job is I get to teach through books of the Bible. And uh, right now at my seminary, I'm actually teaching through Paul's letter to the Romans, which uh, many of you know is, is one of the great uh, letters in the New Testament. And, and I want to uh, bring you a, a message this morning from Romans. So I don't, I don't know if you're in the habit of bringing your Bible, but if you, if you do, or if you bring it on your phone and you want to open to Romans, uh, I'll, I'll be taking us uh, different places in Romans uh, this morning. So if, you, if you'd like to follow along, but if you don't want to follow along, just listen, I'll, I'll read the, the text um, to you. One of the interesting things about Romans is it, it uses a, a main metaphor or symbol uh, for a lot of the way it works. And, and the metaphor, the image, is the image of a law court. So if you want to start off this morning with me and imagine yourself in that setting, maybe you can imagine yourself as one of the, the observers of this law court scene. And, and in a law court, there's the big judge's bench, at the front, where the judge is, is there, robed in a black gown, maybe, uh, uh, staring down at the, at the people who are arguing their case. And uh, off on the side, there's the defendant, the one who's being accused of something. 
and, uh, and this defendant is, is wondering which way it's going to go. And that's, that's the image I'd like you to have in your mind uh, this morning. That's the image that, that the Apostle Paul leads us into as he tries to explain for us what the good news is. What is this good news of God's love for us in Jesus? And he uses this image, this symbol, this metaphor of, of the law court. So, so travel with me in your imagination into that setting. Imagine yourself in that, in that law court scene. And uh, indulge me for a minute. I grew up Baptist, so Baptists love three-point sermons. And I've got a three-point sermon this morning. And, and I want you to imagine it in three moments in the law court. And, and the first moment is when you're waiting for the verdict to come. So you're, you're anticipating the judgment. You're, you're looking forward. You're predicting which way the judge is going to decide. That's the first point. So judgment uh, predicted or judgment anticipated. And then there's the moment when the judge actually delivers his verdict. The judgment delivered. And then there's the moment, maybe the, the after effect moment, when the defendant is there receiving that verdict and having to internalize it, having to think about what does this now mean for my life? And I want, I want us to think about Romans in, in those three uh, points, those three moments. The, the, the moment when we're waiting for the judge to deliver his verdict, the moment when the judge actually does deliver the verdict, and then the moment when the person waiting for it actually receives it. So uh, I think those will be a, a sort of convenient way to, to think about Romans this morning. But let's just linger on that first moment. You're sitting there uh, in the defendant's box and you're, you're, you're trembling, you're wondering which way is the judge going to decide. You're waiting for that verdict to come. Um, I, I remember when I was in college, uh, I, I went to a Christian college. I went to Wheaton uh, College right outside Chicago. And uh, I was one of those kids that really loved going to class. I, I, it's no, no surprise I became an academic. Uh, but but I, I, I loved in particular this one professor that I had. He was just a marvelous teacher. Um, he wasn't just a marvelous teacher. He was also just a deep Person, the kind of person that you wanted to, to glean his wisdom. Um, he, was, he was disabled, and that had caused him to really have to rely on God in some pretty dark times of his life when he was wondering, you know, why am I, why am I dealing with this? Why have I not been healed in the way that I wanted to be? Um, how do I go on following God in the midst of confusion and, and pain? So he was, was just a very deep person. And uh, Wheaton, Wheaton had a cool thing in those days. I, maybe they still have it. I hope they still have it. But they had a little program called Dine with a Mind. And this was, this was something the college did. You could invite one of your professors to lunch in the dining commons, and the college would pay for it. So it was a way of trying to encourage uh, students to get to know their teachers and to, to pick their brains and to, to glean their wisdom. And so I knew uh, right, right away that I wanted to invite this professor to, to have a, a meal with me. I wanted to dine with his mind. And uh, so, so we, we developed a friendship. Um, you know, I, I learned a lot from him in class, but I learned a lot from him outside of class. And I would go to his office and ask questions. And, and he was just someone that I came to deeply admire, and I really wanted to please him. And I, I, I gradually began to feel, you know, he likes me back. Uh, I, I think he's fond of me. I think he thinks I'm a good student. I think he enjoys these conversations that we have. And so when it came time for me to write my first paper for him, I was feeling pretty good, i got to be honest. I was feeling like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a good grade on this essay because I know that this guy likes me. We've had these, these conversations in the dining commons. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling pretty confident that I may walk out of this class with an A on this paper. And I remember we, we got to the day when we were going to turn in the paper. 
And uh, the professor said, now, I want you to not put your name on it. I want you to write your name on the back page where I can't see it until I'm finished grading it. And he said, the reason for this is that I'm terribly fond of a lot of you, and I don't want my personal feelings to interfere with my ability to give you a fair grade. And my heart just sunk. I thought, oh no! (laughs) I knew that he liked me, and I knew I was going to get a grade because of that, and now I just have to stand on my merits. I just have to stand on whether the paper was well written or not. And I remember writing my name on the back of the, of the paper and thinking, you know, this is, this is going to be totally blind now. He's going to be impartial. I'm not going to be his favorite. I, there's going to be no favoritism shown in this. And, and uh, have you ever found yourself in that sort of experience where you, 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 you count on a certain outcome because of a relationship or, or because of who you know or because of what you think you've been able to earn in terms of respect or something like this? And suddenly your heart sinks when you realize the judge isn't going to pay any attention to that stuff. It's just going to be you're going to stand on your own two feet. You're going to stand on your own merits. And have you ever felt your heart begin to sink a little bit? I think that's the sort of moment that Paul leads us into when he's leading us to expect the judge to render his verdict. We haven't heard the verdict yet. We're waiting for it to come. But, but Paul sort of leads us into this place where we're, we're not at all sure that we're going to be able to stand uh, in front of the judge and receive a favorable verdict. Uh, Romans, uh, as, as you may know, it, it starts off pretty bleak. It starts off with a, a, a dark uh, diagnosis of the human condition. Um, in Romans chapter 1, Paul, Paul writes a lot about the sin of idolatry, the sin of, of turning away from worshiping God and instead worshiping images that we've made for ourselves, images of, of fellow creatures. And Paul says, you know, this, this is really the condition of the whole world. All of us have done this. All of us have traded in the, the worship of God, and we've, we've traded it in for the worship of idols. It's really dark. Uh, one of the commentators I read, he, he just has one title for Romans chapter 1. He calls it The Night. It's a dark night. It's a dark diagnosis of the human condition. But, but there's this really interesting moment at the beginning of the second chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, when uh, Paul imagines that there's this other person who's standing off on the sidelines. And this other person is, is like me with my professor. They're feeling pretty good. They're feeling like, you know, I, I hear this condemnation of idolatry, but you know what? It doesn't apply to me because I'm, I'm better than that. And listen to how Paul says it. He says, therefore, he turns to talk to this guy on the sidelines. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man or O person, O mortal, O human being, every one of you who judges. For when you pass judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Ouch. Have you ever felt that sort of moment where you're, you're counting on the, the, the grade on your paper to be good, you're counting on the verdict to be favorable, but then you realize, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. I don't know if I'm going to be as innocent as I thought I was. That's the sort of moment Paul's leading us into here. He's, he's leading us to say, you who feel so confident that you're going to be given an A, you who feel so confident that the judge is going to find in your favor, watch out, watch out. Because you may find that you are condemned along with the people that you think ought to be condemned. It's so much our human tendency, isn't it? To point our finger to say, well, it's those people over there that are going to get the F grade. 
It's those people over there that are going to get thrown out of the courtroom, thrown into jail, but I'm going to be okay. And, and Paul turns and he says, don't be so confident. And it's really interesting how he develops this. He, he leads us into this moment where we're anticipating the verdict. And, and he goes after, I think, two false ideas that we could have. The first one is simply that, you know, my family is such, my family pedigree is such that I'm going to be okay purely on the merits of the family that I was born into. Maybe you feel this way, or maybe you've met people who feel this way. They feel so confident that, that they're in the right because they come from a certain pedigree. You know, I've got, I've got a certain last name. Or I've got a certain culture, and, and whatever, whatever accusations people try to throw at me in life, they're going to bounce right off because I, I'm from this family. That was very much the, the attitude that Paul had to confront in Romans. He was confronting people who believed that simply because they were born into the people of Israel, simply because they were born into God's chosen people, that was enough to make them okay in God's eyes. Listen to how he says this. He says, uh, do you suppose... O man, O person, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think that just because you're born into a certain family, just because you have a certain family background, that somehow you're going to come out unscathed? The second thing Paul goes after, though, is the idea that because you've been able to attain certain privileges in your life, because you've, you've acquired a certain kind of honor, you've got certain badges pinned onto your lapel, that that's going to mean you're okay. Uh, there were a lot of people in Paul's day who, who, who talked this way. There were a lot of Jewish people. Remember, Paul was a Jew, and, and he knew the Jewish culture very well. And he knew that a lot of people were not only counting on the fact that they were born into the family of Israel, but they had done all the right things in that family. They had gotten circumcised. They had, they had kept the law. They had done everything right. And these were like sort of badges that they thought, well, of course God's going God's to justify me. Of course the, the judge, when he gives that verdict, it's going to be a verdict of innocent because look at all my badges. Look at the family I was born into and look at all the things I've been able to do in my life. Look at all the attainments. Look at all the framed things on my wall. Look at, look at all the, the times I've had my picture in the paper. You know, I'm going to be okay. And Paul really goes after that. He, he says, don't count on those things to, to put you in the right before God. And it's, it's really kind of, kind of stark and kind of harsh what he says. Listen to what he says about God. He says, God will render to each person. This is Romans 2, verse 6. God will render to each person according to his works. In other words, it's not the family you're born into. It's not the, the rapport you've been able to build with the professor. It's not all the badges that are on your, your lapel. It's your deeds. It's what you've done. That's what's going to put you in the right before God. Did you, did you write a hasty paper? Did you pull an all-nighter and throw that essay together and think that you're going to get an A? The only thing that's going to get you through the judgment is what you've done. To those who by patience in well-doing... Seek for glory and honor and immortality. God will give eternal life. But for the other people, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. For the Jew first and also for the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first, and also the Greek. And then here's the kicker. 
Romans 2, verse 11. For God shows no partiality. God is like my professor who, who, who asks you to put your name on the back of the paper because he doesn't want to judge in terms of favoritism. He doesn't want to judge partially. He wants to be totally unbiased in the way that he judges. That's, that's the picture Paul leaves us with of, of what we're anticipating when the judge steps into his judge's bench and pounds his gavel on the bench and renders his verdict. He's going to be completely fair, completely impartial, completely unbiased. Now, if you're anything like me, you're, you're feeling nervous right now. Where's the, where's the grace? Where's the forgiveness? Well, Paul's going to get us there. But first, he wants us to linger in this moment where we're waiting for the judge's verdict. And what we ought to be feeling when we're waiting for that verdict is, I'm not so confident anymore that I'm going to make it through with an A. I'm not so confident anymore that I can just bank on my last name or my family pedigree or all the honors and awards that I've got in my glass case in my office. None of that is going to matter. The only thing that's going to matter is what I've done. Have I, have I done well or have I done poorly? God is completely unbiased. He's completely fair. He's a neutral, impartial judge. So that's the first point. We're waiting for the judgment. But Paul doesn't leave us there, thankfully, right? Paul doesn't leave us there. He takes us into the second moment. He takes us into the moment when the judge pounds that gavel on the bench and actually speaks the verdict, actually renders the verdict. And this is in Romans chapter 3. And it's, it's really interesting how Paul starts this. This is Romans chapter 3, verse 21, if you happen to have your phone out or, or be following along. Romans 3, verse 21. But now, Paul says, the righteousness of God, or we could say the, the, um, the justice of God is, is how you might translate it. The righteousness of God has been manifested so this is the moment where the judge is going to declare his, his judgment. He's going he's to show that he's just. He's going to show his righteousness. Now, what's really interesting about Paul, this is what I've tried to drill into my students the past several weeks. What's fascinating about the way Paul writes this is how shocking it would have been to those who were originally hearing him at first. Remember that Paul is writing in a, in a world where people were expecting the judgment of God to come at the very, very end of history. The judge is going to give his verdict once all of history has wrapped up. And all human beings who've ever lived are going to come before his judgment seat, and he's going to pound his heavenly gavel, and he's going to render his verdict. And, and Paul, growing up as a Jew, uh, believed that that was the last thing on the calendar, that was the last thing before eternal life starts. That was, the, that was the very final moment of all history. And so a lot of you just thought, well, that's, that's some ways off in the future. We've got to wait for that judgment to come. We've got to wait for the judge to render his verdict. We know that it's going to be fair. We know that he's going to be impartial. But it's, it's some years away. We've got, we've got some time to get our act together. And what's fascinating about Paul is he says, it's happened now. It's really strange. I, I, I don't know how many of you grew up in, in uh, uh, the kind of Christianity that I grew up in. I grew up in a conservative evangelical church. And one of the things we loved talking about in my church was, when are the end times coming? 
anybody resonate with that? Uh, when are the end times coming? I remember being scared to death as a kid. I watched a movie called A Thief in the Night. Uh, uh, Pastor Jerry and I were, were talking about this, and you know, it, it, it scared me. I remember going to my parents and saying, are we, are we about to get to the end times? Could this be in the next four or five years? I was really nervous about this. Um, and, and, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of Paul's fellow Jews, a lot, a lot of his, his contemporaries, they were asking this question too. When is the end times coming? And what, what's fascinating about Paul is he says this event that you thought was going to be way off in the future is actually now, now, but now the righteousness of the judge, the, the justice of the judge has been manifested Whoa, we're already there in the courtroom is what he's saying. We don't have to wait for it to come. We're there right now. And what's amazing about it is if you're, if you're there trembling, thinking, I don't know if I'm going to pass. I don't know if I'm going to get that A grade. I don't know if the judge is going to find it in my favor. Listen to how Paul goes on. He says, this righteousness of God, this justice of God, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you, if you stopped reading there, you'd think, okay, so everybody there in the courtroom is just going to be sent to jail immediately. Everybody has sinned. There's nobody who's innocent. The judge cannot declare anybody to be okay in this courtroom. But listen to how Paul goes on. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 24, and yet are justified. In other words, declared innocent. They're declared innocent by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an atoning sacrifice. God, God gave his son to be like that lamb in the Old Testament, the atoning lamb who, who was the sacrifice to take away sins. God, God put him forward by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness or God's, God's justice, God's integrity. Because in God's divine forbearance, God's patience, he had passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Notice that. Not some way off in the future, but right now. At the present time. So that he might be just and also the justifier. The one who declares innocent. The one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, this is actually pretty radical. Um, imagine if somebody came to you and said, you know, all those end times that you were afraid of and you were wondering, is it going to be in 10 years? Is it going to be in 20 years? Is it going to be in 30 years? It's actually right now. You're living in them. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you, you, you Jews who were expecting this judge, the verdict to come, you know, in, in, in several decades, the, the judge has already rendered his verdict. He's already spoken the words. He, he's already delivered the, the, the verdict that you were anticipating. It's already happened. And if you, if you begin to see this, if you begin to hear this in Paul, you suddenly begin to see it everywhere. I would invite you to just go back through the, the New Testament, read back through it, and see how many times the New Testament writers talk about the end times are actually right now. 
uh, Jesus in, in, in Mark chapter 1. I know you've been going through Matthew's gospel, and, and you can see this in Matthew as well. But in Mark, uh, the first thing Jesus says, the first words he says when he starts preaching is, the kingdom of God, the, the, the reign of God, the, the, the saving activity of God has drawn near. It's right here among you. I mean, that's why we prayed this morning for healing, because it's not something that we have to wait for in the future. It's not something that we're looking forward to 10 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. It is right here. It has drawn near. The end times are here already. Or listen to the, listen to the writer of the Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter 1. He says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors. In other words, the Old Testament prophets. God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but... In these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. The, the writer is saying, if you, if you think that you have to wait for the last days, if you think you have to wait for the end times, you need to, you need to recalibrate your thinking because the last days are already here. God's, God's, God's bringing it in right now. I don't know if you guys ever sing that song, Days of Elijah, uh, here at this church. But, but uh, that, that, that song, is, 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 it's actually pretty theologically good. Because what it's saying is these days that you think are, are way off in the future when God is going to heal and God is going to forgive and God is going to do all these amazing things, those days are now. Those days are right now. That's what Paul wants you to hear, that you were waiting for the judge's verdict and the judge has already given his verdict. The judge has given it, in fact, uh, in AD 33 when Jesus hung on that cross. Look at that cross. That's where the verdict happened. Um, if, you, if you go back and read the, the, the gospel stories about the crucifixion in light of the Old Testament, it, it's really fascinating how you know, the Old Testament says that when the day of the Lord comes, when the very end of history comes, it's going to be a day of darkness. It's going to be a day of earthquakes. It's going to be a day when, the, when the, uh, the sun doesn't give its light anymore. You know, that, that's the end times that we're waiting for. And if you read the gospel stories, all those things are exactly what happened on Good Friday. Remember, there was darkness that came. The sun was obscured. There was an earthquake. In other words, the gospel writers are trying to tell you that moment, that decisive moment when Jesus hung there on the cross, that was the moment when God, the judge, was delivering his verdict. And it was a verdict that means salvation. It was a verdict that means judgment on Jesus and peace and healing and forgiveness and eternal life for us. Listen to how Martin Luther says it. Martin Luther, the great, the great reformer. We're, we're celebrating the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation this year. And, and so I've been reading some, some of Martin Luther. But, but Luther imagines that scene. You might even want to look at the cross while I read this. But Luther says, the Father, God the Father, sent his son, Jesus, into the world. He heaped all the sins of human beings upon Jesus. And he said to Jesus, be Peter the denier. Be Paul, the persecutor, the blasphemer, the assaulter. Be David, the adulterer. Be the sinner who ate the apple in paradise. Be the thief on the cross. In short, be the person of all human beings, the one who has committed all the sins in the world, and see to it that you pay and make satisfaction for them. Now the law comes and says, I find him, the son, to be a sinner who takes upon himself the sins of all human beings. I do not see any other sins than those in him. Therefore, let him die on the cross. I think this, this ought to just 
revolutionize the way we think about life. No longer are we waiting for sins to be judged. They've already been judged. No longer are we waiting for God to show up and to show that he's a righteous God, a just God, a fair God. He's already shown it there. The verdict has already come. No longer are we waiting for our sins to be forgiven. No longer are we waiting for peace of conscience. No longer are we waiting for healing. It has come. It's here. And that brings me to my third point. So we we anticipated the judge giving his verdict. We saw that he gave it on the cross when Jesus died. And now we come to the third moment. This is in some ways the most important moment. It's the moment when you and I hear that verdict and receive it and internalize it. We all know the experience of, of hearing something and it goes in one ear and out the other and we don't ever really take it into ourselves. We don't ever really internalize it and make it a part of us. And I want you to, this morning, internalize that verdict. You were, you were trembling, waiting for it. It happened on the cross on Good Friday. And I want you to receive it this morning now. That's, 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 the, that's the moment where it becomes yours where you take it into yourself, you, you welcome it into your heart, you let it give you the peace that you've wanted uh, all your life. And, and I think Paul really drives this home later in Romans when he writes this in Romans chapter 8. Uh, this, is, this would be a good verse to memorize if maybe you haven't memorized it, but Romans chapter 8 verse 1, Paul says this, there is therefore now, there's that word again, now, not sometime in the future, but now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That word condemnation, that's a law court word. That's the, that's, that's the verdict you expect when you, when you realize I'm guilty. I, I'm not going to get that A on the paper that I thought I was going to get. My family tree isn't going to save me. My last name isn't going to save me. My, my case of trophies in my office, my list of degrees, my awards, my promotions at work, none of that's going to save me. I'm sunk. I'm going to be condemned. I'm waiting for the judge to give his verdict and I'm going to jail. That's what we, that's what we expect. And then the, the verdict that was rendered on the cross, what it means when we take it into ourselves is no condemnation, no condemnation. There is now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's, God's judgment day verdict, it's already been rendered, friends. I mean, yes, there's going to be a time when we all appear before God, but we can know right now what the verdict is going to be because we look to that cross. We look to the moment when the judge has already rendered the verdict and the verdict for you, if you trust in Jesus, and I'm, I'm going to invite you in a moment to trust in Jesus, the verdict for you, if you just lay down all your efforts at making yourself okay, if you just let that all go and you trust in Jesus and you give your whole reliance on Jesus, the verdict over you and the verdict over me is not condemnation. It's no condemnation, no condemnation. God always and only speaks to us this way in Christ, friends. Um, Paul says in another one of his letters, God's word to us isn't yes and no. It's yes in Christ Jesus. I tell my students there's a huge difference between a, what I call a because therefore way of thinking or an if then way of thinking. Let me tell you the difference. The, the difference is this. If you have an if then way of thinking, you think to yourself, well, if I do such and such, if I have the right last name, 
if I have the right rapport with my professor, if I show myself to be a decent, responsible human being, then I'll be okay. If then. If I do this list of good things, then I'll be acceptable. If I lose this amount of weight, then I'll be okay. If I get this extra degree or this extra promotion at work, then I'll be okay. If then. We're all tempted to think that way. I think it's built into us. It's hardwired into us as fallen people. I remember uh, one time um, I I was working in inner city ministry uh, one time in Minneapolis and um, my, my ministry, uh, my boss, uh, he, he assigned me to go to this, this drug and alcohol rehab center to lead a, a Bible study for, for the men there. And uh, I remember there was a guy who had, who had just gotten out of prison. He was, he was uh, you know, trying to stay sober. And uh, he had a history of, of, of substance abuse. And uh, I invited him to come to Christ. I, we, were, we were studying the gospel, and I, I invited him to come to Jesus. And he said, I love Jesus. I can see that he's amazing, but I need to get my life together for six months. I just got out of jail. I need to get my life together for six months and show Jesus that I can be a decent person. And then once I've cleaned up a little bit, once I've gotten myself a little more presentable, then I'll become a Christian. If then, if I do this, then God will accept me. If I live in such a way, then I'll be okay. And I just said to him, I said, friend, that's, I I hear you. I feel that myself, but that's not the gospel. The gospel never says to us, if then. It says, because, therefore. Because God loves you. Because the verdict has already been spoken over you. Because you've already heard the word, no condemnation. Therefore, you can now live in a different way. Not if you live in a different way, then God will love you. Not get your act together for six weeks or six months and then come back to God and see if you're presentable enough. No, it's the other way around. It's because God has made you presentable, because God has spoken his word of forgiveness and no condemnation over you. Therefore, you can now live in a way that you never thought you could live before. Therefore, you can now live totally free. You can live without fear. Let me me just tell you briefly Uh, Three things that Paul uh, thinks this verdict means for us. Uh, Firstly, he thinks it means freedom from the fear of God. I know that that there's a sense in which we do need to fear God. We can read the Old Testament and and, and talk about the the reverence and and the trembling that we ought to have before God's majesty. But there's a deep sense in the New Testament that we don't have to be afraid of God. Listen to how Paul says it. This is also in Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 15, he says, you, he's writing to believers, he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What Paul is wanting you to hear is that if you've you've taken that verdict into yourself, if you hear the judge saying to you, There's no condemnation for you. You're innocent. I forgive you. You're not going to jail. There's complete love and acceptance. If you take that into yourself, it will radically take away your fear of God. You don't have to wait until the very end of your life to find out if God's going to accept you when you appear before him. There is therefore now no condemnation. And what that means is that you can pray to God, not out of a, 
a, a, a cowering fear, but you can actually cry out to God and call him Abba. That's the Aramaic word for father or dad. You can call God father. You can call God the one who's on your team, the one who's got your back. Paul says later in Romans 8 that God is for us. He's for you. That's the first thing Paul wants you to take uh, into yourself. Um, I noticed, Pastor Jerry, you had, you had uh, several copies of um, John Bunyan in your office. And he, here's a quote from John Bunyan when he, when he grasped hold of this truth. He says, one day as I was passing into the field, John Bunyan was the one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, he was a Baptist preacher in England. Uh, one of the great Christians of the, of the past. He says, one day as I was passing into the field, a sentence fell upon my soul. He read a sentence and it, it, it fell upon him. He, he took it into himself. Here's the sentence. Thy righteousness is in heaven. Your acceptance, your righteousness is in heaven. And I thought, I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. And there, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing in my life, God could not say of me, that person lacks my righteousness. Have you ever felt like that? That you're walking through life and suddenly God's looking down on you and saying, you're not righteous enough. You lack my righteousness. Bunyan said, God can't ever say that because your righteousness is in heaven. Your righteousness is Jesus Christ. He goes on. Uh, for it was just there in front of God. I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet was it my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. It wasn't that I could make my righteousness be a little bit better by things I did or make it be a little worse by things I didn't do. No, my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and now forever. Bunyan says this, now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. So that from that time, those dreadful scriptures about the judgment, those left off to trouble me. Now I went home also rejoicing for the grace and love of God. That's what Paul wants you to feel. No fear of God. Secondly, uh, Paul wants you, I think, to, to feel freedom from worry about your needs. Freedom from worry about your needs. I, I don't know what you feel like you need this morning. I, can, I could start listing a long list of things I feel like I need, and I wonder whether I'll ever receive them. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. God, who didn't withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Think about the logic of that. If God has already given you his very own son, if he let him hang on that cross for you, if, if God has done that infinitely precious thing of giving up his very own son for you, is there anything else that he would ever think about withholding from you? Is there anything else that could be harder than what he's already done for you? That's the logic. If, if the judge, the righteous judge, has already stepped out of that judge's bench and, and given you his, his very own son, Jesus, to be your righteousness, how could you ever think anymore that he, he's going to be stingy with you, that he's going to be miserly, that he's, that he's sort of saying, well, I gave you five good things last month. You can't have that sixth one. 
No, God is, God is lavishly generous. That's what Paul wants you to hear. God's, God's heart is overflowing with generosity. He is for you. He's on your team. He's on your side. He wants you to flourish. And friends, we have to believe this even in the dark times. I mean, it doesn't always look like he wants us to flourish, right? But that's the logic of what Paul's pressing us to believe. He wants you to believe that even when every one of your circumstances says otherwise, even when it looks like God is withholding some good thing from you, God is radically for you in Jesus. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us everything we need? And then finally, the third thing, and I'll close with this. The third thing Paul wants us to grab a hold of that this, this verdict means for us is it means that we are now suddenly radically free to love others in a way that we never could have before. I mentioned Martin Luther. One, one of the, the real insights that Martin Luther had was that if you are worried about your own righteousness. If, if you're standing there in the courtroom and you're wondering, is the judge going to like me or not? Is the judge going to find in my favor or not? It becomes so hard to love other people. Why? Because all your energy, all your mental energy is bound up with being acceptable with God. You don't have any energy left over to actually love people. I mean, you may actually do good things for people, but it's all about you it's all about, I'm going to do these other good things for people so that God will like me, so that the judge will accept me. I'm going to go serve in the soup kitchen. I'm going to go serve in the inner city ministry. I'm going to try to be nice to my spouse. I'm going to try to be good to my kids. I'm going to do all these things, and it looks like I'm doing it for other people, but actually my motive is I need to be righteous enough so that God will accept me, so that the judge will find in my favor. And what Luther saw is that if you're, if you're bound up with that kind of fear, if you're worried that God the judge is going to condemn you, if you're worried that you're not going to be acceptable before God, it's like, it's like a huge wet blanket is put over your love for other people. You can't love other people. You can try, but all of your motive is going to be to be acceptable with God. And Luther said, but what if it was the opposite? What if, what if God came to you and said, I completely forgive your sins. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus don't worry about the judgment. The judgment has already been rendered on Good Friday. You are safe. You are secure. You're innocent. I declare you righteous. Jesus Christ himself is your righteousness. What does that mean for you? It means that suddenly you are free in a way you were never free before to love other people. Why? Because you're not worried about using other people for your righteousness. You're not worried about doing all these good things for people so that you can add them up in your book and then show it to God and say, see, God, aren't I good enough? You don't have to play that game anymore. You can, you can now love people from your heart. You can now love people because you want to. You can now love people because that's what you enjoy doing, not because you're trying to score enough points so that the judge will accept you. It's life-changing. It's life-changing. If you really grasp that verdict, there is therefore now for you, for me, this morning, right now, because of that cross, there's now no condemnation. You're going to be able to love people in a way you never were able to before. You're going to be able to love because you're just so grateful to God, not because you're afraid of God. You're going to be able to love because you see your neighbor's needs and you just want to meet them out of the, out of the joy that you have because God has accepted you. Luther has this great saying. He says, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. 
God's not counting on you to add up all your good works so that he'll accept you. He's already accepted you because of Jesus. He's already called you his child because of Jesus. And now what that means is you can love. You're free to love. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans 13. Uh, This is one of those passages where Paul begins to talk about the Christian life. And and he says this, uh, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Think about that. Owe no one anything except to love each other. You You don't owe people anything. You don't owe God anything. God's not keeping score anymore. God's accepted you. There's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. So owe no one anything except to love. That's what you're free to do now. That's what God's calling you to do. Oh, and by the way, Paul says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The law is not a a scorecard anymore. The law is not the thing that you're trying to keep to get all the buttons on your lapel. The law is spontaneously fulfilled by you as you bear the fruit of the Spirit, as you begin to love out of that acceptance that God has given you. For the commandments, Paul says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And listen how he ends. This is how he ends Romans 13. He says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Do you hear that? Because therefore, not if you cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, then the day will dawn. Not if you do this for God, then God will do this for you. No, because the day is already here, because salvation is yours, because God loves you right now as you are, therefore you can begin to do the works of light. You can begin to love. You're radically free to love in a way you never were before. I want to pray uh, for us. And and as I pray, there there will be... um, couple of people here to, to pray for you. And if, if, this, if this is a message that you feel like you need, I don't know whether you maybe feel like you've been a Christian all your life and you just need to, to be reacquainted with what the gospel really is. Uh, I would invite you to, to go and pray. And, and maybe you're here for the, and you're hearing this for the first time and you think that sounds really too good to be true. It is. Uh, I mean, it is true. <laughs> it, it, it's true because God has, has already declared it true in Christ. Good Friday happened and Easter Sunday followed Good Friday. God raised Jesus from the dead and Jesus is now there in heaven and he is there to be your righteousness. And maybe you say, I've never known that. I I never got that before and you want that. There'd be someone there who'd be glad to pray with you. So I want to pray and then, and then Pastor Jerry will come up to, to dismiss us. So would you, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word from St. Paul, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you that now your righteousness has been revealed. Thank you that in the year AD 33, when Jesus hung on that cross, you, the righteous judge, spoke your verdict. He was condemned. He died so that we might have life. By his stripes, we are healed. By his wounds, we're forgiven. 
I pray that all of us here today would know that, believe that, take that into ourselves, and that it would transform us so that we might love in a way we've never been able to love before. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Wesley. Why don't you stand with me? Again, if you're our guest, I want to just encourage you to take some time to fill out our connection card. We really want to just touch base with you. And if you have any questions, we'll be able to do that. If uh, what Wesley had to say speaks to your heart, again, we have people just waiting over here. We'd just love to pray with you, be with you, talk to you, and uh, just support you uh, in your, your faith decision. Um, I got a text from Pastor Jordan. He said that uh, about 90% of our goodies have been sold. So thank you for helping out our Jamaican team. And if you got a sweet tooth and it's still not satisfied, be blessed. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. So if you'd like a blessing before you go, just put your hands in the air. You can do jazz hands today if you want. It works. It's been a great morning. And so here it is. May the Lord be with you this day. And may he be within us to purify us. May he be above us to draw us up. May he be beneath us to sustain us. And may he be before us to lead us. And finally, may he be behind us to restrain us. May he be around us to protect us. So, so sanctuary. Now go. Go and love those who he has placed in your world. And do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Be blessed. We'll see you next week. We pick it up on the Sermon on the Mount.